back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Brian Bowden, a comedian and talent coordinator at the Comedy Connection in East Providence, Rhode Island. He's been doing stand-up seriously since 2007 and headlines all over the Northeast. He's at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut on November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Hopefully you can see him there. If not, there's always the Wicked Funny podcast he hosts with Katie Arroyo and Frank Gazzaro. He promoted that a couple times, so I think he wants you to listen to it. He helps book the Comedy Connection, and he runs shows all over the Rhode Island area. He's a very busy guy. You're going to love him. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's five bucks a month. Also, follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook and go to homebrewcomedy.com to see all of my dates. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. No problem. What's life like right now in Rhode Island? In terms of uh, life or comedy? Both. I've never been. So where do you live? I live in Binghamton, New York. So oh, okay. it is not. I like how you Old yeah, Binghamton. You know. Have you been there? You know, uh, I dated a girl from Binghamton once. Sorry about that. She was a big lady. Big lady. <laughs> I used to call her the big one from Binghamton. <laughs> i probably know her <laughs> no i've never heard of it rhode island's uh, a good place you know you can drive through it in 45 minutes you know it's got a club it's fine it's a nice place you know i don't do anything you know right. i don't do, i don't do anything you know and rhode island's so small like there's nothing to do you know like i'm a comic so i'm always at, i'm always at a bar or a restaurant so it's like on my off nights, I don't want to go to a bar or a restaurant, you know? Yeah. So I, I like, I stay in. I was a sports writer for a long time. Like I did high school sports and I loved baseball. I still do, but I would watch sports all the time. Then I started working the games and I'd come home and I'm like, no, I just want to watch Law and Order SVU because I've been around sports all day. I don't want to do that anymore. Oh yeah. Like, like I don't watch comedy at all. I don't watch any kind of, like unless a friend has a, a special or, or a spot on something, you know, and like I know them personally and I'm going to text them. I usually don't. Even if I have their tag, fuck them. I don't watch it. I don't watch. <laughs> I've been asked that, too. Like, oh, have you seen this special? Like, no, not because like I'm I'm doing comedy like four or five times a week. And like I'm I'm running. I'm seeing every other joke. I don't need to see it. And yeah, it's like, I'll get to it eventually. Yeah. And it's like I. And being a comic, you watch comedy differently. Like like a guitar player uh, watches another guitar player and they know how they play the notes. Yeah. It's like when I watch comedy, it's like, oh, I, I see where this joke's going. Or this is a good take on this on this joke, on this subject, on this premise. You know, it, it's like I've seen it all. I've seen it all. So it's like it's not motivating anymore to me. You know, maybe I was a year or two in and I had a guy I was an audience member and this guy on stage didn't know who I was. So not that I'm a big name or anything, but he didn't know I was a comedian. And he pointed at me and he goes, you're not enjoying the show. And I caught myself. I was like, oh, I'm looking at him as a comedian, like trying yeah. to figure out how he got there. And I completely forgot that I wasn't laughing. I, I didn't particularly think it was that funny. But like I was like, oh, I should have had like a poker face on to like at least pretend that I was invested in, you know, his success. 
one of my dreams, and I know I sound like such a snob when I say I don't watch comedy and I can't do it. One of my dreams is to like go do comedy in a, in a new city and go in like a day before and find like the local show. And then sit in the front row and like kind of randomly, like this is a douche thing to do, but randomly like heckle <laughs> to the point where somebody goes, you think this is easy? Why don't you get up on stage and do it and then get up on stage and do it? I've <laughs> like I've always wanted to do that, but the comedians around here know who I am, so I can't do it around here. It has to be like in some place I've never been before and just sneak in. And piss off enough people to where they say, no, you you get up here and do it and then do it. And then like like my fantasy is like like I'm just tagging along with this. Like one guy in the back says, hey, man, this is crazy. And then he goes, gets his friends. And now everybody from the bar, they're coming to watch you. And the yeah. comedians up there, they quit because things yeah. went so badly for them. Oh, man, I've been working to this for 10 years. And this guy, this guy has no idea what's going on. He just comes out yeah, and, and it's kills like- me. Oh, what happened to the Nashville, Tennessee comedy scene? It's like, oh, it got <laughs> lambasted by this heckler that came in from out of town. And he said, he said, I could do those jokes better. And the comedian said, come do it. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody and then everybody quit and they burned Nashville to the ground. And Nashville is a pile of dust and country music is also dead. <laughs> You'd be the one person who came up and said, I was trying to make the show better. And you actually, yeah, did. I'd be like the good guy version of Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> Just it's like, yeah, he time. wiped out half the people, but they were the ones you wanted gone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> When'd you start doing stand up? Well, it's two answers to this. I started in 1999, it was my first show. And then in 2004, I quit for three years. So I really started in 2007. That's when I really took it seriously. Those first four years from 99 to 04, th- those were like really blurry years. I was in school still, you know, still in high school. And I, I was doing Eddie Murphy jokes on stage and I had no idea what comedy was. Like, I didn't know you had to write your own jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like it was bad. I was very hacky and terrible. And but nobody, nobody told me that it was wrong. So I just kept doing it. <laughs> you know, did it go over well? Oh, I killed every time, man. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck? Eddie, Eddie Murphy didn't get rich on Delirious by it sucking. No, he got rich because it was good. And and so did I. <laughs> so why'd you go away for those couple of years? Because it wasn't it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, okay. by that time, I was, what, 24? I was, yeah, I was like 23, 24. I didn't know what, what I was doing. All I know is I was doing these shitty shows, and it's not going anywhere. And, you know, and I enjoy drinking. And drinking and partying was fun. So I just, I just quit. Like, I'm like, fuck it. Quit. I'm always interested because a lot of people I talk to have done that. They've taken, like, six months off or a couple years, like, during that time, like what brought you back? I mean, did you just kind of miss the attention? Oh yeah. Like a comedy mind. Like I have, I have a couple friends that, that stopped over the pandemic and just never came back into it. And I, and I would, and then when I reconnect with them, it's like, you know, you're still thinking like a comic though. Right. And they're like, oh yeah, because you learn to think differently. You know, those four years, it's like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't doing comedy, but I was still running bits the whole time. Like I was still writing jokes. I was still doing jokes alone in my car. 
not that I meant to, but I just figured it out slowly over those four years that, oh, this is how you write a joke. This is how you deliver it. Was there anybody in your life who was just like, all right, I'm sick of you working out material on me. Please go to a mic. Please go to a stage. Find somewhere like an outlet to unleash this pent up these thoughts. Like when when people do it to me. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, like during that time where you off, like where you, you kept thinking as a comedian. Were you trying this out on anybody else? And be like, like, get the hell on stage. Go back well, up. Well, that's again. the thing. I I have ADD really bad. I'm I'm severely ADHD. Uh, I'm in the 99%. So if we're at parties and stuff, you know, my friends would we were big on like campfires. You know, we'd have campfires. If we're sitting around a campfire, I'm usually the one running the show, you know, like I'm the one doing the jokes, but it doesn't come off as running material. I'm just telling stories to my friends. And like to this day, the ones that they laugh at were the ones that I started doing in my set. Yeah. I came back into comedy. So I wasn't really running material on people. I was just talking and then taking the funny things. And I'm like, oh, that's a bit. Let me put that over here. You know? Yeah. Were you always like that as a kid? Oh, yeah. Always like that. Matter of fact, I was having lunch with my manager one time and just out of nowhere, he goes, do you always do this? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, do you always just come up with bits? And I'm like, why? What bit did I just do? You know, and he goes, he goes, no, he's like, this is like the third time this meal. You came up with a bit that could be used in your act. It's funny. It's complete. And you don't you don't do it on stage. He goes, and you're not running material. He goes, do you do this all the time? And I'm like, I guess, you know, because I don't know when I'm doing it. I just say things, you know, and it was like that growing up in school. I would yell things out. That's a symptom of ADHD, blurting out inappropriate things. If you think of what comedy is. When you get your punchline, that's a punchline. Yeah. You know? So without comedy, what would you be doing? Just annoying other people? Uh, Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I got a day job that nobody knows about. I'm actually a teacher <laughs> assistant. Oh, okay. And was in a, in a, you know, so I work with special needs kids during the day. How was that? My sister is, I don't know, the, the diagnosis a long time ago was mental retardation. And like, mm-hmm. you know, back in the early 80s, that's what she was diagnosed. I don't know what the more nuanced diagnosis is, but. Oh, we got rid of mental. So it's just okay. retards now. Yeah. just re- <laughs> I mean, At work, we just say, look at all these retards. <laughs> I like special needs. I use yeah. special needs or, you know, I, I, I don't like disabled. Personally, I like in 2022 because my feelings matter. I like special needs. Right. Yeah, because they just need some special needs. That's all. It's got to be a challenging job. But how rewarding is that? I mean, well, that's the thing. It's it's very emotionally rewarding. However, I cannot pay bills with emotions. Yeah. So that's where the comedy comes in. My day job is my part time job. I'm there for benefits, you know, so and the position that I have and the kids that I work with and my personality, it I find it very easy. They must love you, though. Mm hmm. Yeah. You got to keep things fun. A couple of them hate me. A couple of them hate me. You know, I've been hated. I've been hated by a few special needs kids. Yes, I'll say that. But yeah. But yeah, for the most part, you know, I I don't look at it. I'm not working. I'm just hanging out with these kids for a little bit while they do what they got to do. Is there anything you could take from that job onto the stage? Like not in terms of material, but like dealing with, let's say, a hostile audience. Oh, I do it all the time. I do okay. it all the time. There's little tricks all the time that I do with hostile audience that I also use in the class. Because if you think about it, a drunk person is kind of could be like dealing with a special needs person. Yeah. Right. You, I use the same exact techniques. Like 
uh, a lot of the times if, if people are talking, I'll just, you know, drop my voice a little bit. And then that makes everybody want to be quiet. And then what that does is it takes the annoying table and it puts the focus on them. And so they know to quiet down. I don't even have to say anything. All I have to do is just change my cadence for a little bit. Yeah. Another thing is just making eye contact with somebody. You know, if somebody's like there was this girl texting at a show and it's like she's not bothering anybody. She's not being loud, but she's got her phone out every two seconds. So it's like you just stare at her for a little bit and they know to put the phone away. You know, little, little, little things like that was what I do. Yeah, I was told that that first scenario was like verbal judo. If somebody gets loud, you go lower and they'll eventually come down because they want to hear what you're saying and they feel like the asshole. Oh, yeah. It's a whole psychological thing. There's two ways of dealing with something like that that I find very helpful. Either I quiet my voice and when I quiet my voice, either they learn to quiet down or when they don't quiet down, what happens is it kind of makes like think of them as like ground zero for being annoying. Right. Yeah. So they're like this little annoying ball. And the louder, more annoying they are, it just expands and expands. And I'll let it. I'll let it. And I won't shut it down right away. I'll wait for other people around them to be annoyed. That way, when I do go at them, it's not me going at them. It's me and saying what everybody around them wants to say. So it gets a bigger pop to where if you don't let that build a little bit and then you go at them, you go at them too quick. Now the audience might think it's like, whoa, why is this comedian yelling at this fucking table? They're just ordering drinks, you know, because that could be it, too. Sometimes I've seen I've seen comedians do that. Like they'll look at a table and be like, hey, you need to shut the fuck up. And they're like, we're just ordering drinks like we're just we're, we're doing what we're supposed to do, which is we don't know what to do. You know, if we order these drinks, you can still do comedy here. Oh, yeah. Hostile audience is like, I agree with them. I agree with ev- like especially drunk people that make no sense. I just, you got to agree with them because usually, you know, when people are like that, they're looking for an altercation. Yeah. They're looking for something, you know, that's why like whenever a drunk person's going to, you know, leave, you let them fucking walk away. You don't say, yeah, keep walking. Cause that's just going to make them turn around. Cause they're looking for something. So, you know, uh, whatever it is, it's like, I always just kind of agree with them. I'm like, yeah, man. Yeah, this place is pretty strict with the talking, but that's what we got to do here, you know? Fucking rules. They're the worst, huh? <laughs> Over the last 15 years, have you noticed they getting any better, any worse? Um, I think it's gotten... There's not many aggressive heckling anymore. You know, I used to host the hardcore show at the Comedy Connection. It was a weekly Friday night, 10 o'clock show. It was a rowdy audience. It was really, really rowdy. So you would get like mean hecklers. You would get like the aggressive hecklers. You would get the people, you know, we would we would tell people, hey, if you think you could be funny as a comedian, come to the hardcore show. <laughs> like we would call out people to come to the show and heckle. You don't see any of the mean hecklers anymore. Now it's like happy hecklers. Now it's like people that want to be involved with the show. Yeah. You know, like some lady the other night was just talking and I'm like, hey, I go, I go, I know, listen, I'm trying to do a thing like I, you're going to agree with a lot of the things that I say, but you can't talk because that's going to make me hate you. And I don't want to hate you. And it worked. And she quieted down until the end of the show when I talked to her again. And But then at that point, I was inviting her to talk. It's like you were quiet the whole time. I know you got shit to say. Let's do it. We'll have some fun and I'll close out the show. But yeah, no, not not really hostile. Hostile's a harsh word. I don't get hostile that much anymore. Yeah, I had a show a couple of months ago, I think, and these four women, and there weren't a whole lot of people. I would say there were maybe 12, 14 people there. 
And there's four women were completely drunk and they're bus drivers from out of town. I'm sure they were at a hotel and they'd looked forward to this, you know, all who month. drove them. I have who no idea. Drove them? We were all hoping they drove each other home and it was bad. But the woman sat in the front row and just like kind of like just seats, not a, not a table, just just uh, seats in a line. And she had her foot like her leg was draped across two seats. That's how many people were at the show. And I was like, what do you what do you own the fucking place? And every single joke anybody had any line for her, she fought back and we were trying to hurt her feelings. And one of the comedians is like, yeah, she's like the end boss, like the heckler of all hecklers. You couldn't take her down. And she had such a good time, had no idea we were talking about her to everybody else, just in her own little world. And part of me was like, I kind of respect that. Like, you can't hurt her feelings. And I'm like, man, I, I want a sliver of that so I can function in everyday life. Now, did, like, was everybody on board when when she would heckle? Did everybody get on board with her or were they like, I don't uh, know. was she like, was she ruining the show? That's the thing. She was ruining it, the moment. Sometimes. Yeah, because sometimes it can get to a point where a heckler, like so many comedians go back and forth, like somebody might heckle once. And because of that, now the whole show is all the comedians talking to that person. That person then becomes the star of the show. And then it becomes like you had to talk to this person because everybody else before you gave that person permission to talk. Yeah. You know, so was it a situation like that or or did she just come out the gate heckling and then didn't stop? Well, she came. I mean, I went up there to say, hey, we're going to start in five minutes. And she had jokes for that. So she was ready to go. I hit her down a couple of times and I did material and it was fine. And then it got progressively worse. And then the headliner does a lot of crowd work. So it just kind of invited her to be part of this. And then anytime he tried to switch in material, she shot up. So he did his best and usually he can nail her. But I mean, it just bounced off of her. She was just unfazed. huh? Yeah, it was. Like I said, it was kind who, of yeah, who talked to her first. Did you talk to her first or did she heckle first? Well, when I the mean, show started, the show started. I think I, I pointed out to her that yeah, it's she all your was, fault. Yep, it was. I, yeah. I, took the, I, took the <laughs> but I, but I see like I see like a lot of these empty chairs in front and one woman and she's got her leg draped across. And I'm like, I got to point it out. I don't know. And yeah, so I definitely took the loss with all the comedians. But whatever. I'm good with it. <laughs> She's a bus driver from out of town. We're never going to see her again. So you know, <laughs> we, we defeated her for the, for the time being, at least. What's the scene like in Rhode Island? I mean, I, you're all over the place, but like when you're home, I mean, what's it like? That's the thing. I'm really I'm the talent coordinator at the Comedy Connection, but I'm not in the scene. You know, okay. like I can't I can't speak for the scene because I'm not there. I've seen a lot of flyers of shows. Right. Uh, I can only assume what the scene is, but. You know, when I'm home, I'm focused on booking the connection and bringing the connection up. I book my own independent shows. I worry about those. I got uh, the Wicked Funny podcast. I do that every week. You know, I I stay busy when I'm at home. So I'm not in the local scene. You know, I had a talk the other day with my buddy, Brian Glowacki. You know, we were talking about like podcasts and we were talking about different things that we do and videos. And it's like, I wish we were at a time when it was like, hey, you go to a club and then another club sees you because their talent coordinator was there. And it's not like that anymore. You know, you don't get booked because you're funny. You get booked off social media followings. You get booked. Very rarely do you get booked because you're funny. You know, that it's rare now. And that sounds so crazy to say, but that's where we're at, you know. And now, you know, I'm working on this podcast and I'm, and I'm you know, I'm doing this with you. And it's like, 
I'm not doing open mics anymore. You know, I'm doing stuff like this now. Right. You know, like instead of being in the scene, I'm doing this. I'm doing my podcast. I'm making a dumb video. I'm editing stuff. I'm you know, I'm making graphics for my podcast, you know, writing stuff like that's what it is. You know, that's where I'm at now. The comedy connection, you're the talent coordinator. I mean, are you just booking the shows? Yeah. So okay. I, I book everything there except for the weekend headliners. Okay. And the feature acts. So usually the headliners bring their own features. So I don't book that. If somebody, if the club needs a feature for the weekend, you know, usually I get the call to find somebody to fill the spot. But, uh, you know, I book every weekend host, every showcase that they have. Uh, I teach a comedy class there, you know, and I love watching comics come in, you know, on the class. And then they start doing like the bringer shows. And I love watching people work their way up. And I love working with people. And it's a funny thing being in a position where I have to look at things, not black and white, but it's also not a gray area, but based on this business, you know, and it doesn't fall down to what I want. It's what they want. So it's like this weird filter thing that's happening and, and some people like it and some people hate it. And uh, it's fun. It's a good time. So are you scouting for like new MCs and things like that? Maybe possible features in case you, Need somebody in a pinch? Um, am I scouting? No. Okay. Like what well, I, I like like scouting is going out and finding the next big feature. Right. Right. Like like who like you know, it's like I know a really funny guy in Seattle, Washington. His name's Jason Stewart. He can come in and do this feature spot. It's not gonna be worth it for him. So where's the value? And that is working with comedians that have been brought up in the club you know i say brought up in the club but comedians that work the club you know like there's somebody this weekend i started booking them on the bringer shows you know and they started out doing five minutes you know and then they're stretching to seven you know and then after years of that it's like hey come host this show you know and after a year of hosting you know this kid's been working four years on and off in the club out of the club busting his ass he finally gets a shot. He opens up for Bob Marley out of Maine. Right. And now Bob Marley is going to take this kid on the road to do some theater shows with him, you know? And he's like, hey, man, he goes, you really helped. And I'm like, no, no, I, I didn't help you. You you did it. All I did was put you in the spots that you deserve to be in through the work you put in. That's all I did. So when I say am I scouting, I'm not really scouting. When it comes time to fill that feature spot, I'm looking at the people that have worked the club that earned a spot to get that feature spot. How nice a feeling when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, thanks for this. And you know how much they've worked, how hard they've worked. How nice a feeling is that? Say, wait, I had a small, a very small part in their success. I mean, it's awesome. It's an awesome feeling. It feels really good because there's also a flip side of that coin. There's also a comic that got a hold of me and they're like, hey, man do you think I could feature at the connection? I'm like, I'm sorry, but no, like you're not ready for that yet. You know? And I've worked with this guy. I've done shows with him, And it's like, like there's reasons why I said that. And I, and I laid it all out and I was very clear, you know, I wasn't an asshole about it, but I'm like, look, I go, here are the shows you're doing. And the features at the connection are at a different, it's a different level. You know, it's a, just a different thing. And you're not ready yet. Not no, you'll never do it. Just you're, you're not ready. But now he goes, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Take me off all the shows you have me on. And it's like, all right, bye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, 
And it's like you hear through the grapevine and people come back, you hear what this guy said and, and you're not booking this guy. And it's like, yeah, you're going to get that when you're in that position. So, yeah, it is. It does feel good when somebody gets an opportunity like that because of that other flip side of the coin where there's people that don't want to put in the work that think they're owed something. And when you try to tell them, like, no, they go off and do their own thing and talk shit and do all this other stuff. So. So, yeah. How do you combat that? I book independent shows like all over New York and I've got, you know, I don't like the exact number, like 20 rooms or whatever, all over New York. So I have people ask me to be on shows. And, you know, there are some times where I'm like, I don't know how to say no or you're not ready or you wouldn't work with this. Like, how do you basically have the balls to say, no, you're not ready? Well, that's the thing. You can't. Number one, it's funny business, not funny friends. Yeah. That's how you got to look at it. It's funny business, not funny friends. I put things in place at the connection to where I make it easier for me to say no. So like I only put six spots on the bringer shows. That's it. Six. So when people like give me a spot, give me a spot, it makes it a lot easier to say no because I only book six. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like somebody that isn't ready, I say, look, you know, I can't book you for the connection. Here's why. Here's what the connection is looking for. You know, and that's happened. There was a there was a comic. He was very alternative, you know, very one liner, very dry. And he's been around forever. And he just is like, hey, man, what do I got to do to get booked into the connection? I heard you're booking it. And I'm like, I go, what are your goals for the connection? Number one. Right. Like, what are you looking to do? If you want to come do spots, I will gladly give you spots. You're good enough for me to give you spots. You know, uh, I didn't tell him that. I just asked him what he wanted. If he's like, oh, I want a feature. It's like, all right, let's put on the brakes and talk about it. You know, and he's like, I just want to do more shows and get in there, you know, maybe for a weekend. And I'm like, all right, here's the problem. The connection is looking for high energy. They want the host to go up there and like, hey, you guys ready for a good time? And you you're just very dry, you know, and it's not to say that it'll never happen. It's just that you need more shows on that stage so that you can get used to working the room. So that when it comes time to do the weekend, you can alter your act a little bit to the room and not get eaten alive. Because I know the room. I know the crowds. I know what the owners are looking for. And that's what it comes down to is what they're looking for. I'm just a filter. In your experience, are people usually okay with being told I'm looking out for you? Like in mine, I've got rooms where I'm like, I know this person isn't going to work well there. And I'm kind of looking out for his or her best interest and also mine. I don't want the show to tank, but yeah, I found that people don't think that way. Like, no, I can do any room. And it's like, they don't, they don't. People are very, it's an ego driven business. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, we all have egos, you know, and and it's funny because the ones that don't probably should have an ego. It's really (laughs) funny. Isn't it funny that way? But let's say somebody comes to you, they're not ready for a particular room. Right. Could you offer them something else? Right. Like that's something I would do. I'd be like, look, this room is weird. You're not going to this room. You're not going to like this room. This room over here is better. You know, just how about this spot? You know, and then and then it's up to them to do it. At the end of the day, they're your shows. Right. At the end of the day, you know, it's am I willing to put my job at the Comedy Connection on the line so that somebody can have a shot? Right. I will always have a room where I'm like, okay, well, this is. This is my B room. I will give somebody a shot here because the budget's a little lower. Maybe it's a free show, whatever. Or if the room is secure, like I, I know that one bad show isn't going to 
piss off the owners and because I'm mm-hmm. doing, I'm doing bar shows. So like any show could theoretically be the last show. Yeah. So if I have it completely secure, I'm like, yeah, I'll take a gamble on you. That's fine. But I can't do that with every room. I've had somebody come up to me and I hadn't seen this person at a mic in a year or heard of them going to the mic. And she was mad. She's like, hey, why can't I do a show? I'm like, well, I haven't seen a mic. It's like, oh, I have to go to your mic now. I'm like, no, you have to go to a mic. And it's like, she's like, why? I'm like, because it's my business. And I can't yeah. risk losing the room because you tanked. So sorry. And it's I, when I said that, I haven't heard anything else since. And it's like, okay, well, that separated the line for me. Like, no, this is a business. There's money involved now. And there are customers. People don't think about that. Yeah, no, they they don't. There's a... I don't want to say there's a disrespect for the business, but I think that there's a disrespect for the actual business of comedy where, you know, people want things that they're owed. People think they should be on shows when it's not their call. Yeah, it's your job. It's your reputation. You know, if the guy that booked the show through me said he wants a clean show and the comic up there is swearing, I don't care how much he's killing. I'm going to be pissed off. And that's happened. I fucking yelled at one of my best friends after a show. Because he's up there swearing. It was supposed to be PG-13. I'm like, why are you dropping F-bombs? And he's like, yeah, but the crowd loved it. I go, that's not the fucking point. Yeah. The point is, the guy giving me the check is giving me dirty looks because you're dropping F-bombs and I told you to fucking be clean and you said you would. You're fucking me now, you know? And people don't take that into consideration. I booked over 152 different comedians at The Connection this year. Wow. Okay? Over 152. Out of them... I got a whole spreadsheet I could bring up. I do that same uh, thing. I keep a track of everybody I booked. I think I'm up to like 198 or something like that. Yeah, it's like I do the spreadsheet once and then like I forget about it. And then yeah. when it comes time to update the spreadsheet, I don't know what any of it means. But <laughs> but uh, the last time I did it, it was 152 different comedians. And out of those 152, I think there were 40 hosts. So that means 112. Yeah. Right. 112 were doing the bringer spots. So that's 112 comedians. You know, if all of them are looking to do comedy on the weekend, if all of them are looking to host a show, that's 112. That's 112 people, not including the people that are already booked to do the weekends, not including those other 40 hosts that I have. So out of those 110 people, 112 people that want a spot at the connection, how many of them do you think sent me? A tape. I'm going to guess how many of those people? Oh, man. I would say I want to go low. I want to go 34. All right. Now, how many do you think performed on a bringer show and then sent me a tape of that set that they performed on? All of them. One. You're kidding me. One. One person performed on a bringer show, uploaded the video the next day and said, hey, thanks for the spot. Here's my set. Love to be considered for more work. One, one out of 112 people did that total tapes. I probably got maybe 15, 16. Wow. Not including press kits. So, you know, people send their press kit all the time, you know, for like, you know, the, the feature spots and stuff. And that gets put into a whole separate folder. But yeah, like that's that's where we're at. So when you say like, how's the local scene? I'm not in it because I'm I'm booking people that aren't even booking sets at the show that they're at to send me a clip. Yeah. Which is like. One out of 112 people did that. That's less than 1% of the comedians. When I was booking the showcases there, 
I would reserve the back two tables. And every email that I sent out before the show, I would put in the email, you know, I reserve the back two tables if you want to set up a tripod. Every once in a while, somebody would bring a tripod. At one point, I left a tripod in the green room. Still unused? Mm-hmm. You know what it is? I feel like I've baited the open mic scene enough to where it's like, if you can't figure it out by now, you know, I can't help you anymore. You know, like I've I've said in the messages, you know, and if you'd like to be considered for work, record your set and send it in. Just flat out set it and people don't do it. So sometimes these people need to look at what have you done for yourself? You know, like when you said that, that, you know, that comic was like, you know, you need to go to a mic. You know, it's like, what have you done for yourself? If you can't invest 20 bucks in a tripod to film your set and send it to somebody, why am I going to put you on the weekend? Right. And it's not it's not just about a tripod, but it's other things, too. It's like everybody has a value, you know, and that's how I booked the club. Everybody has a value at the club. What's your value? Sometimes your value is just bring four people to the bringer show. You know, you might not like your value where you are at the club. And, you know, some people are hosts. Some people run the shows for me, you know. Yeah, it always bothers me as a producer when I have a local person, let's say somebody from Binghamton. I'm doing a show in Binghamton. I got a Binghamton comedian on there and they don't even promote it. And I'm like, listen, I don't expect you to bring everybody to the audience, but aren't you proud to be on a show? Don't you want some people to see? I don't care if your friends come. I don't care if your family comes, but someone on the periphery to see this show, like have some interest. Like the more people we all bring to the show, the better the show is going to be. And that's how I look at like, like, like a big stigma, right? Bringer shows. Like I brought that up a bunch, right? Yeah. Bringer shows. I book a bringer show, right? And there's a lot of comics that look at it like, dude, fuck you for bringing, doing a bringer show. You're just using comics to get people in the crowd. It's like, I know the numbers of the club, you know? I'm asking you to bring four fucking people. You know, I'm asking you to bring four tickets. Do you want to headline the club? And the, you know, and it's like, yeah. It's like, all right, when I headline the club, I have to sell 600 tickets over three shows, which is a lot more than bringing four on yours, you know, like, and it's like, they don't, they don't get that, you know, to have, if you're a local comic and you need, and you want value in your local area, bringing people to shows is going to add value. You know, promoting a show is going to add value. There's 112 comedians that I booked last year. What makes any one of those comedians better than the next one? What's the value? If it comes down to a spot, am I going to book the guy that comes in and crushes or am I going to book the guy that comes in and crushes and promotes? Well, I've definitely booked people who I knew could bring an audience before a funnier person. Like it's business. Yeah. Sometimes it needs that. Sometimes a show needs that. Well, I mean, you know, I've had rooms where they were kind of on the fence about doing comedy anymore. And I was like, okay, well, let me go to the well. And this person has brought 18 people in the past. If I can get nine people, if I can get half those then it's going to fill the audience out. They're going to buy drinks. They're going to buy food. And we're all going to get another show. So, and when you don't promote or go to a mic and it's a bad show, a lot of people aren't thinking about, well, what's the ramification? Like if I have a bad set, if I don't bring anybody, if nobody comes to the show, they're not thinking, well, there's not going to be a show for other people in the future because they don't give a fuck about the other people. Yeah. They've already got the show. Yeah. And, and man, it's like, it, it, (laughs) You know, remember when I said I was in that ADHD, I have this severe ADHD. Yeah. I take Adderall for it. And when it wears out, the symptoms double. And it happened like right when we started recording. Now we're talking about, 
now we're talking about booking and it's like we're talking about booking and the business of comedy and it's a subject that i love and so now my brain's just fucking going so fast that i can't even get the words out of what i wanted to say even that took a lot out of me um but yeah no like you said like on this show you need you need the, the audience needs a boost so you put this person on yeah you're a businessman so you know what in your business tonight you're choosing to fill that role with somebody that might not be as good but can sell you a couple tickets yep. and what the fuck is wrong with that Nothing. you know exactly people can book shows however the fuck they want you know there's i there's no <laughs> there's no wrong way to do a show but you can do a show the wrong way yeah and whenever I do that, like if I know what cards I'm dealt, I'm like, okay, well, if I have a new comedian, let me put a killer with them. So even if that new comedian doesn't do particularly well, nobody's going to remember because you've got the feature. I do four person shows, so I'll host them usually. And then we'll have an opener and then the feature and the headliner. So the feature mm-hmm. and the headliner are absolute killers if I'm putting a newer person on. Because I want to take the pressure off that person. See, I do the opposite of that. Really? I have the killer host. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll have the killer host and then put the newer people up. That way, if the shit hits the fan, you know, the, the host can bring it back. Well, I host the show, so like I'm I'm comfortable with my doing that. So Oh, so the, you do do that. You yeah, do yeah. put the killer in the hosting spot. Of course, of course. Fuck so yeah. like the opener, I think, is the least amount of pressure. So mm-hmm. I like that because generally I'll do pretty well. And then the momentum is set. So, yeah. And then the feature cleans it up and the headliner just kind of coasts you mm-hmm. know, in an ideal show. Now for you, like, how did you get to where you are? I mean, you're looking at these comedians now and like, well, you're not even putting a tripod on. What were you doing back when you restarted in 2007, 2008? Uh, 2007, 2008 first started. Oh, paradathons. Paradathons, Parada's a guy, he runs a place around here and he books shows, but they're called Paradathons because every show has like 12, 13 comedians on it. And it's like, it's like, like how I said, like, you know, like newer comics have that value of being able to sell tickets, right? Because they're excited to do comedy, they can bring people out. And it's like to where you will put a person on that can sell some tickets. That's this whole show. And he'll just squeeze out all these people for all the tickets that they can bring on every show that he can get them on. And then next thing you know, like you're you're on these shitty shows and you're like, what the fuck am I doing here? And so that's when I started to really branch out, you know, before when I said, you know, in 2004, it wasn't really going anywhere. It's because I was only doing his shows. So when I came back, I'm like, I need to actually get out and do something at one other show that I did, this lady Rochelle was there and she was the manager of the Comedy Connection at the time. And she's like, hey, you know, if you ever want to come to the Connection, let me know. And she put me on the Bringer show. I did it. I did another Bringer show. Then she goes, I'd like you to come host. And I'm like, oh, great. Did my first hosting weekend. Calls me the next day and I got offered to work with John Panette. Oh, you know, great. So I work with John Panette. I work with John Panette. He's doing New Year's. He wants me to open for him again. So I did New Year's with John Panette. And then next thing you know, it's like I started to get more dates there. I'm still doing all the shit shows that I can, still getting out where I can, still working the day job. And it was a hustle. It was just getting it was getting people out to shows. It was doing the shows that I had. And I would hand out business cards after every show. Every show, I stand next to the door and just hand out business cards. Hey, come see me again. Come see me again. And then that's kind of when Facebook started. It was like 2009, 2000, 
10 somewhere yeah, about there. That. yeah yeah so that's what i'm like hey find me on facebook find me on facebook we'll be facebook friends and it was just that at every show the connection goes out of business and then gets bought by a comedian named eric who was also doing all these paradathons that i was on so i knew this guy eric and because he was doing this group of shows with this guy he just brought all the people that did those shows into the connection so we all came in like a wave and now we're doing all these shitty shows at the connection and that's where the hardcore show was born and i was the only one he came up to me one night while this really great comic was on stage bomb and he's like he goes can you just host this thing every week he goes nobody else can fucking do it and this guy was like always coked out of his mind always drunk and i'm like fuck yeah i'll do it and it was just hitting the ground from there at the connection and i just did that show for the next 10 years and from there just working the weekends when i could and getting out and connections networking so that weekly show how strong of a comedian did that make you just going up week after week it doesn't sound like a great atmosphere. it was it was fucking brutal yeah. it was fucking brutal because the the guy was just drunk one day we were painting the connection like that's how I, that's how much i wanted to get in <laughs> i would paint i would go in and help this guy paint the walls after he bought it and he, he goes, uh, he goes, I want to do a show like, you know, we got the fucking headliners coming in on the Friday. He goes, if I, I can book them for the Friday, then they do Saturday. But then Friday, what I can do is just make the audience stay for the second show and they'll buy more booze. And then, you know, what we we'll do is we'll tell the bounces, like, let the people heckle. That's why I said we used to call hecklers to the hardcore show because that was the allure. And if we're dealing with hecklers all night, we're not constantly running material. Right. So we're just dealing with hecklers. But it was some shows were a fucking nightmare, but we powered through it. But that's what made me the comedian that I am today is because I was up there constantly dealing with the crowd and then constantly writing bits and doing the bits and, you know, like using it not as an open mic, but like. It made me learn how to write faster because I only had a couple weeks to do the bits on stage before they got old. Because this is the same crowd coming week after week, too. That was another thing. It was a built-in audience. So you're yeah. doing the same jokes for the same people. Yeah, I'm doing a show now. We just went monthly. or We just went weekly a month ago. So like, I've got it tonight. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to bring a relatively new set. Like, It doesn't have to be all like 10 new minutes, but like, it can't be last week's set. So I'm shuffling things around like, okay. And I've had to rely a little bit more on crowd work. So that's good. Like I'm getting better at it and more comfortable. Mm. Did that show where you had, did you have to do crowd work to like, you know, just get people engaged with you? Uh, Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It started with crowd work. We did a lot of crowd work and yeah. And, and it's funny because now like I used to host this show that was basically the, the crowd work hour. And then, and now I'm telling people, hey, man, you do too much crowd work. I can't have you host on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really funny. But yeah, like crowd work is such a, it's such a good tool. Like it can, it can help and hurt, right? Like it can be like a hammer. It can help you nail in a, a nail or you can hit your fucking thumb with the hammer and hurt yourself. Yeah, You know, it's it's one of those things like there's a kid that would just always do crowd work. And I'm like, I can't like you always do crowd work. I'm like, the headliners don't want that shit, you know. And then I'm like, just I go, we call it licking the donuts, right? There's a way of doing crowd like like as a, as a host, go talk to a table, talk to a table, eat a donut, talk to that table. 
You know, don't go up there and pick up a donut and lick it and then lick another donut and then bounce from table to table. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, eat a donut, enjoy the donut, you know, get everything you can out of that donut. Fill yourself up with that donut. Don't eat all the fucking donuts, you know? So that's where it can help and hurt. So I told this guy, like, just start by taking a joke that you already have and just asking one table about it. Yeah. And that's what he started doing. And now, you know, he's doing weekends. Have you? Because he's not licking all the donuts. Have you met Marco Cadani yet? No. Okay. He worked in New York for a long time. He's down in Pennsylvania now from Ohio. But he told me that when he does crowd work, and he's stumped on what to like a punchline. Maybe he's like, all I do is ask why, or like I ask another question and you keep asking, mm-hmm. you get to know this table, get to know these people. And eventually something comes to you. And even if it doesn't, they have a connection with you now. So yeah. you're engaged. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's a nice trick. You know, it's funny. You're saying that I'm like, Oh, I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, why would you do that? Who would you do that? Yeah. And then you, then you finally find, <laughs> you know, it's funny when I do that and then, I can't think of a joke. And then I just uh, end it. (laughs) (laughs) That was good talking to you. (laughs) I asked somebody recently, uh, (laughs) like I was like, uh, it's Halloween. This was a couple days ago. And I asked him like, oh, do anything with the kids? He goes, no, no, not this year. I'm like, oh, why not? He goes, they're with their mom. I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to get sad. All right. (laughs) I was like, oh, I love stuff like that. No, I love stuff like that. I love, I love digging in. I love, oh, cause it like something like that. Like they, like he kind of offered it up. He's with their mom. Oh yeah. yeah that, like I would be like that bitch. Yeah. Right. And then depending on how he reacts to that, you know, ask the next question, you know, you know, what, what holidays do you get them on? <laughs> you know, is St. Patrick's day just as valuable as Halloween? You know, <laughs> they're, they're both in school that day, but it's still a holiday. Right. <laughs> so how do you balance your time? As a comedian, is it easy for you to separate the two? A talent coordinator, comedian? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy because like at the like I, like I don't need stage time. You know, it's like I just want to book these shows out so I cannot do anything for a couple right. of weeks, you know. So. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really it's it's easy to separate the two, but it's equally as tempting. You know, it's equally as tempting to want to do every single show that comes in and fucking. You know, like when you know when you know that there's uh, new people on the showcase and the crowd's going to be hot, and I can just drop in and do as much time as I want. It's like, yeah, good. I I don't. You know, when I'm not doing comedy, I I don't want to do anything. Like I'm at a point every like I have a schedule Thursday, Friday, Saturday are shows. You know, Tuesday I record my podcast. When like I'm I'm doing this with you now. You know, it's like if I'm not around it, I want to be away from it. So. Yeah, it's easy to compartmentalize. So what do you do on Monday? Is that your day to relax? Monday's generally my day to relax. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I get my kid from school. We hang out. Monday's a good day. Sunday, Monday. Two best days. I don't do shit. <laughs> I bet on football on Sundays, you know, and, that, and that's really my only days that I can decompress because every other night I'm doing something. Tell me about the podcast. Wicked Funny Podcast. Yeah, it's ADHD, baby. That's what it is uh the, it's about adhd we talk about the symptoms we talk about everyday life we just have adhd on the podcast we just did a whole great episode one of our listeners is transgender so uh our transgender person i don't know what the right thing is. well 
that's the whole thing. We asked them a bunch of like, is it okay to say transgender person or just transgender? Like, you know, but like we know tranny is wrong. Right. And it's just fun. Like we have fun with things. <laughs> Like the transgenders. <laughs> <laughs> I found people. It, I found that if you come at it with like an angle where like, yeah, I want to be, I want to be educated. Like I want to do right by you. People often don't get mad at that. Yeah. You know, like it's funny, like, like earlier before I made that joke, like in 2022, we, you know, yeah, that's where we're at. We're at a place where it's like, you say the wrong thing. You get fucking crucified, you know? And like you have these questions, like we had these transgender questions, right? Like some of them were fun. Some of them were legit questions, you know, like if somebody says they're transgender, can you ask them if they've had the surgery? You know, like that's like, if I'm talking to somebody, is that a rude question to ask? I don't know. But now it's like, I have this place where I can ask a real live transgender, and, you know, and there was a time I was in this this uh we read funny messages from creepy dudes to women yeah. on my podcast every once in a while it's called creepy corner and so i'm in a couple of these facebook groups where uh women post the messages that they get the creepy messages and uh and then we ask them if we can use the messages on the podcast there was this one lady that put up a screenshot of a guy responding to her in a bikini right on a dating site so she's on a dating site in a bikini and he says I like this very much. And then he did like the heart eyes with the kissy emoji. And then she just posted that in the group. And I went in the comments and I'm like, why is this creepy? Because I generally didn't know. Like you're in a bikini. He reacted to what you put up. Like why, why did this constitute this guy being shamed in this group? And I ended up getting banned in the group for 30 days. Really? And I'm like, wait, what the fuck did I do? They're like, you are, you're, you're, uh, what are they? It wasn't slut shaming. Wasn't slut shaming. That wasn't the term that they victim blaming is what they use. They said, you're a victim blaming, you're victim blaming. And I go, wait a minute. All I asked was why I'm trying to have a communication to give me an idea. Because at the time I was a single guy as to why this is creepy. And like, maybe if I'm on a dating site, I might say something creepy. And because I have a conversation with you fucking idiots, I rethink it, you know, but instead they banned me for 30 days. (laughs) When I was learning about the pronoun stuff, I'm a former journalist and I was 35, maybe 34, 35. So like I was proficient in in grammar and punctuation rules, whatever. So I heard a singular person referred to as they, them. And I told my girlfriend at the time, I was like, that is always, I think, going to bother me a little bit because I was always taught that they, them is plural. And she just lost it. She's like, you're a bigot. And I'm going, no, no. All I'm saying is that I'm trying to understand because I have to basically unteach myself. And I'm trying that like I'm an ally and you're pushing me away. That's dangerous. I that was one of the questions that I had for my transgender person. (laughs) Um, I think it's a basic question. But I was taught, did you see the Manny Teo documentary on Netflix? Yeah. The girlfriend that wasn't there. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. All right. So we were talking about that on my podcast. Now, the person that catfished Manny Teo is transgendered. You know, they're a transgender person. So I'm trying to explain what happened to my co-host 
I'm like, no, no, the guy, it was a guy that was getting, but it's a, no, the woman, it was a woman now, but it's a guy then. And, you know, and I'm like, I go, the hardest thing about talking about this documentary is getting the fucking pronouns right. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to tell a story in the past tense to a person that's transitioned or, you know, like, that's the thing you don't know what to say. So on the podcast, I literally refer to transgender people as they, thems. Right. Right. And by doing it week after week, it's like at first my my co-host Frank and, and he's still every once in a while he goes I don't think we're supposed to call them that and I'm like but you know exactly who I'm talking about you know when I'm at the store I'm like yeah I ran like those like so they then was talking to this other guy it's like we use it because it is they it is them it is he she and it, it's so different for every everything I think it's so hard to teach yourself these things that I just use they them yeah no I agree with that like. That whole documentary and that person, I forget the name, but like you look at Caitlyn Jenner and Bruce Jenner, it's like, well, who won the decathlon? Like, who was the athlete? Was Caitlyn the athlete? We all grew up knowing as Bruce Jenner was like, so I don't know. Yeah, see, but that's what I like about my podcast. I like having a place where I can say, in my mind, I'm saying Bruce Jenner won because when we look at the fucking, we, we look at the history of this thing, it's going to say Bruce Jenner won it, even though technically Caitlyn Jenner won it. Right. Then they were Bruce. But now the, uh, my 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 transgender person said <laughs> that, you, that you refer to things in the present tense. So, yeah, it's like Caitlyn Jenner is a gold medalist, you know, but Bruce Jenner won the gold. <laughs> So, so who hit the person? <laughs> I mean, I, I, That's I the know. thing. It gets tough. It gets tough. I think. I think you know. Like I'm willing to bend, but we gotta have some. We gotta have some. You know. Like I'm. Like I'm will. I'm trying, but there's gotta be some. Some universal shit. Like that is a great example. This podcast has this made you a better comedian on stage? Uh, I think so. I think so, because by opening up on the podcast, it's it's made me more vulnerable on stage to talking about things that I wouldn't normally talk about. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's helped me. Absolutely. If anything, it's a nice creative outlet every week. You know, it's 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 good for mental health. Yeah, I think just doing the podcast has made me better on my feet on stage because you and I are talking. I don't know what's coming out of your face. Like, I don't know what's next. And it's I have smoke. To to that. Smoke is <laughs> smoke is coming out of my face. I, I was talking about the words, but like, <laughs> like it makes me react a little quicker. So if I'm on stage, just conversing with somebody for an hour or so, you know, doing it for ten minutes, that's no problem. Like I'm already yeah. at this, and I've got material in you know the back. So I think that's where podcasting really helps me. Yeah, your brain's a muscle. You got to work it. You know, if I'm doing the podcast and I'm not at open mics, I'm still working the brain. Right. You got to work the brain. You ever listen back and like, like you're like you're saying something on the podcast, but then you're listening back and then you come up with like the same word in your head and then you say it on the podcast. Yeah. It's uh, like, I, I love when that happens. It's like, yeah, I what'll, still got it. You know, what happened is like, I'll cause I'll edit this podcast and I'm like, okay, well I'll write stuff down. I'm like, Oh, that's a story I forgot all about. Maybe I can do that on stage or, you know, I did that four years ago or I can't, mm. I forgot this. So like just doing the podcast will jostle memories loose. And oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I did a thing on the podcast about how my mom would dress me up like a scarecrow on Halloween and just stuff straw down my shirt. And I did it on the podcast and my co-host Katie was just like, she goes, that's funny. She goes, she goes, you got to do that on stage. And I'm like, no, I'm like, it's just for the podcast. And then I did it on stage and 
And I do it now, and it works. It's fucking great. So right. yeah, shout out to the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> Wicked Funny Podcast. Do you remember the worst set you've ever had? The worst show you've ever done? Anything that like really sticks out? Yes, worst set I ever had. It was. I mean, it's not even bad. It was Bobby Collins is one of my was one of my favorite comedians growing up. Right to where I don't watch any comedy now. When I was a kid, that's all I watched. That's all I watched. I studied it. And Bobby Collins hosts a stand-up spotlight. So I always want to work with Bobby Collins. And so he came to the connection one time and the owner needed a, a feature last minute. He's like, Do you want to open up for Bobby Collins? I'm like, fuck yes, I do. And I showed up and I it's like Bobby's a great guy. I love talking to Bobby. He's fucking awesome. We had met before. This is the first time I got to work with him. He knew I was a comedian, you know, because I had that hardcore show and I come in and see him before his show. And uh, we had a great time hanging out. And then I went up on stage and I, and once I touched the microphone, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm opening up for Bobby Collins. That means these are fucking Bobby Collins's people. And they it was <laughs> 65 and up and they all they hated everything that i had to say to the point where like like i was bombing so hard and it's like i've done it long enough to where it's like like even on my worst day like my worst day my worst day i'm good you know even on my worst day i can get through a set you know i'm a professional i can get through it on my worst day and this was so bad i just started to eat it and and i started to own it and going like harder into the jokes and when I brought Bobby up, he was laughing very hard about that. So that was the worst show that I ever did. I mean, the worst spot that I ever did, the worst bombing. Yeah. Uh, the worst show I ever did was in New Bedford, Massachusetts. <laughs> and it was like, it was everything that you could do wrong at a show was done wrong at the show. Like the venue didn't have staffing. The producer of the show was like, Like, we're going to have to start a half hour late because the chicken has to come out because people haven't eaten yet. So now you got to wait for people to eat chicken. And then uh, he's like, I added a spot to the show. And the spot that he added was a comedian that, like, has no business doing comedy. Right. You know, you said, like, like I said, everybody has a value. This guy is like, I don't understand the value to this show. Like, it was fine without him. Show started an hour late. People, you know, the lights, there was no spotlight. I mean, there was a spotlight, but every time I talked, they had like DJ lights going off behind oh, no. me. So it, they changed colors. Nobody gave an announcement that the show was starting. The host went up like it, it was it was an urban show. It was an urban show. I don't yeah. know if you ever done an urban show. Yeah. OK, like this is one of those things. I can't tell you this show without saying it was an urban show because they're very different fucking shows. Yes. OK, when white people have a comedy show, white people go to a comedy show, they will go out to dinner. Then they will go to the show and then they will go out for drinks. Urban shows gen- like it's all in the same place in the same night at the same time. So when you show up, the DJ lights are going up because there's music fucking being played before the show and people are dancing and having dinner. And it's a rowdy fucking time. And that's hard to set up a show when there's no announcement or indication that there's going to be a show. So the host really has to focus on quieting the showdown. And a lot of hosts are really good at it. This guy just kind of egged it on and and made everybody more amped up. And he was like, we need more energy. And it's like, dude, we need to bring it down, right. you know? And then they couldn't even find the host at one point when the, <laughs> the guy that they added the guest said to was bombing so hard, they needed to get him off stage. And we couldn't even find the host to the show because he, like the host was gone. 
And they're like, he needs to get off. Like, this dude is bombing and he's going long. Like, we got to get him off the fucking stage. And the ho- we couldn't find him. The host was sitting in the second row of the show. And the host was me. also like, a, the host was also a co-producer of the show. So the host is also the co-producer of the show. He's watching this guy bomb. He's seeing people literally yell, get off the stage. And he's not doing anything about it. Like, he's so oblivious to it. And then after that, the microphone died. So now the show stops. So now they had the show completely stops because the microphone died. And they're trying to fix the microphone, get the microphone working. They decide, like, let's play music instead while we fix the microphone. Oh, no. So now people are up getting drinks, doing it's like it was incredible. And then the host goes, all right, you guys ready? We're going to the microphones work. We're going to shut the music off. Shut the music off. Shut the music off. All right. Show's going to keep going. Your next comic is Brian Bowden. And I'm like, what the fuck? Fuck! Like, <laughs> go. you know, I, you know, like, uh, like I said, even on my best day, I'm good. You know, I went up and I said, if you came here to see a comedy show, say shut the fuck up, You're right? And I, and it started. I go, if you're here to see a comedy show, tell everybody around you shut the fuck up. And everybody goes, shut the fuck up. I go, I said, if you came here to see a comedy show. Tell the people talking to shut the fuck up. And they did it again. And I did that like three or four times. And I go, I think we're ready to start the fucking show. What do you think? And at this point, now the energy is going. I go, all right, now everybody shut the fuck up because I'm about to talk. And it got as quiet as it could in that room. And I held it for as long as I could. And uh, that was it. I just did my time and I walked off that stage and the headliner said, you did all that you could do. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, he goes, you did all you could do, man. He goes, that's, that was great. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. How'd the headliner do? Well, that's the thing. Like this is, this is mind boggling to me. This is crazy to me. The headliner was visibly fucking pissed off the entire night and rightfully so because this was this show was run like garbage but when he got up on stage it was like he flipped a switch and just started doing his set like nothing was happening and it was like he was all good he was happy you know and and again he did as good as he could do i didn't stick around for a set i watched like five minutes of it and i left but it was it was really odd to me to watch somebody be so upset about this shit show you know and the way that it's run and then flip a switch like that and be like nothing's bothering you you know like nothing's bothering like when i was on stage i addressed like this is a shit show everybody like this is awful you know and i made fun of it and it worked out but i definitely addressed it and you knew that i was agitated what was going on but i was still being funny about it yeah i don't know how this guy just flipped the switch to do it it was it was incredible to see and that's the thing. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. It was amazing to see, but I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> At this time, were you producing shows already? What, when I did that show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what's going through your mind? Like, like you know, I assume you know how it's done correctly. And you're oh, watching yeah. this happen. Like, were you just forming like a mental checklist of, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. That's wrong. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There was no checklist. It was everything was wrong. (laughs) There was no checklist. Like it was bad. Like it was really, really bad. And then, like, even decisions that were bad, like decisions that didn't even need to be made were still bad decisions. Like adding this person to the show was a bad decision. It's like you didn't even even have to do that. 
You don't even need to add anybody to the show. We're still pushing the show back 45 minutes because we have to wait a half hour for chicken. And people still going to eat? What are you going to start the show and people are eating? You know, it, it was crazy. It was nuts. It was everything wrong. I noticed that when I am on a show that I am not producing, I try to stay as quiet as possible about the show. Like if I notice something that I wouldn't have done, I'll text a buddy and be like, oh, this is happening. I wouldn't have done this. I can't believe they're doing this. But I try to be on my best behavior as much as possible because like I don't want anybody telling me what I should or shouldn't have done. But it's like a it's an internal struggle. Yeah, I think I think like hmm, while I'm at. Yeah, while I'm at the show, I'm not going to point out what's happening unless it's like a major, major fucking thing. Like one time, like I had to use my fucking headliner card like every like every once in a while. I pull out the fucking headliner card and say, hey, headliner, here's we got to get that guy off the stage. He's talking about fucking he's talking about eating cunts is what he said to that lady in the front row that's about to walk the fuck out so we need to get him off and he's not being funny about it so we need to get him off you know like that like i've done that but if people ask i'll give all the constructive criticism i can do you feel comfortable yeah they gotta ask first though right yeah if you i'll fucking i'll give you my two cents absolutely yeah and it's really funny when when uh, when people ask (laughs) You know, like these are like little victories for me, you know, like, like, like you get shit on, you know, like Brian's an asshole because he doesn't book me and fucking, you know, uh, you know, he he runs bringers. He's a piece of shit. And then like I give genuine advice and they don't follow it and then they lose the fucking room, you know, (laughs) when it's like, hey, you just need to do X, Y and Z. And they're like, well, fuck your advice. What do you know? It's like, all right, fuck my advice. What do I know? This one time this guy just gave me shit before a show I was producing and he was on it. And it's the only time I've rooted for somebody to bomb. And like, I'm not above it. So he came out Neither and just, am I. just ate a dick for 20 minutes. And I'm like, good. And I didn't care if the audience members ever came back because it was about, I don't know if it's pride or just teaching a lesson. But when the guy says, I always kill, I'm like, okay, we'll see. And you know what it is? Flat I- line. Nine times, more often than not, not nine times out of 10, more often than not, most of the people that start booking shows, and I'm not saying this about you, yeah. <laughs> in my in my area, I'll say that about the local scene. A lot of people in my area that book shows are the guys that wanted the shortcut. Yeah. The ones that feel they're owed something. They don't want to do these shit shows, but they're they're not getting booked at the connection either. So they put on what they think a show is. And they don't they don't get it. They don't understand. It's like you haven't been like like if you're texting me asking how much a headliner gets paid, you haven't done comedy long enough to book fucking shows. Right. You know, there was a kid that was giving up rooms. He's like, you know, I'm not going to book anymore. Here are the rooms that I have. And I go, look, I go, I'll take any of the rooms you want to give me. I go, just let me know what the deal is and and I can adjust it from there. And one of the rooms he had was a Saturday night. He had a $50 budget and then he passed a hat after the show. Wow. And it's like, dude, fu- like that fucking hurts the business. How do you You're book- hurting? How do you book it? And, that, and that's the thing. Like you like comics are willing to fucking do it. Com- if He's getting people to do this show. You know, the comics that he gets, are they good? Are they bad? Who do you think's doing a free show on a Saturday night? You know, there's comics that say I'll do I'll do whatever I can get. And sometimes you might get a good guy on the show, but you're putting together this show for fifty dollars. 
50 bucks. The bar's giving you 50 bucks. And now you're asking the guy that watched the football game while you performed to put money in a hat. Like, what are you doing? You don't know the business and you're hurting guys like me that could go into that place, book it correctly, give people like you spots and everybody can make a little money. But you're you're doing it for 50 bucks on a pasta hat like that doesn't help anybody. Well, I got irritated maybe a year ago. In fact, it's the the room where I'm doing weekly shows now. I was trying to get the room and somebody who had never done a comedy show before. He just started tried to get that room. And I was irritated. And another buddy was like, why are you so mad? I'm like, because he's going to fuck it up. And mm-hmm. and it's not his fault. He's ambitious. He's trying to do everything the right way. But no matter what he asks, it's probably not going to be as, you know, for as much as I'm asking. So the comedians doing that show aren't going to get as much money as they are getting paid. He's probably not going to pay himself either. So, like, if I got the room and booked him, he'd make more money doing a show with me than he would if he was running himself. And it wouldn't have sustained. So it's like, that's why I'm upset because it's in this area. And when that bar finds out, okay, this guy's doing, he's willing to do it for $50 and tips, then maybe we should just go with him. And everybody, Mm. it's a domino effect. Every bar will now expect to pay $50 and pass the hat. Exactly. And, and then, and then, (laughs) and then how many times have you gone into a place where they say, you know, we tried comedy. It doesn't work here. A lot. And it's like, it's like, you know what? It, it would. But who did you have last time you were here? And they had, oh, I had so-and-so. And it's like, oh. So what they did was they put X, Y, Z, and here's how they did the shows, right? And they're like, yeah. I go, that doesn't work. That's not going to work for a place like this. You know, the thing that I have going for me is that I, like, not only have I been around doing comedy here, I tra- I've traveled around. I've seen what works and what doesn't work in other places. And that's what I apply at the Comedy Connection. You know, what works, what doesn't work. And now I'm looking for like that middle room, that B room, you know? Yeah. Like there's so many comics that that deserve a spot that I want to give spots to, but I'm only limited at where I am, you know? And I tell comics, like, look, if if you want to do a show, like book it through me. We run it together the whole time we have the show, but let me do it. You know, and some of them just want to do it on their own. It's like, all right, well, you know, what does Mark Cuban say? You're going to get you're going to make more with 10 percent of a great or with 10 percent of a watermelon than 100 percent of a grape. You know what I'm saying? Right. (laughs) No, I mean, but selfishly for you, like, what do you want out of this career? I mean, obviously, you're you're in a good spot right now. I mean, are you just happy being where you are and, and what you're doing? I mean, do you have goals set? I would love to make a living at comedy and not be able to leave the house is what I would love to do. <laughs> if there's a way I could do that, if I can get enough Patreon members at patreon.com slash wicked funny podcast, you know, that could happen, you know, booking shows where I don't have to go to the show and just book it out, you know, work with rooms, <laughs> build rooms. Oh man, that'd be great. <laughs> That's the dream. That's my dream, baby. <laughs> <laughs> when you came back into comedy, I mean, you know, did you expect to be where you are right now? No, no. Everybody takes a different path, you know. I mean, I think when everybody starts out, you want you think you're going to be on Comedy Central or doing late night or you're going to take off. I think everybody has those wet dreams. <laughs> and then, you know, and I think it's good to have that wet dream, right? I would love to have a Netflix special, but I'm at a point where I'm very content where I am. The pandemic really helped me out a lot. 
the pandemic made me stop. The pandemic was the first time that I stopped doing comedy since 2007. I went back in the books. Like every once in a while, I just look back and see how many weeks it was or how many weekends I had off in a stint, you know? And it's like, there was a time I went like seven years without having a full weekend off. Like, that's wow. crazy. You know, like that's that's a long time, you know, a weekly show for 10 years. You know, it's it's so much, so much. And it's like when the pandemic hit, I was able to sit back, relax, you know, and then when things started opening up, it's like, all right, you know what? I'm getting dates. I'm booking out the year. You know, I have a couple shows that I run, you know, makes me some money. I'm doing the podcast. I like doing that. I'm very content, you know, and that's why it's like I love booking shows now because you know, my weekends are booked. Now I just need to find out how, you know, what else, how else can I make money doing this, you know, that isn't just on the weekends. Cause I also know where I'm at. I also know I'm not making thousands of dollars every show, you know, but you make a little bit and a little bit fills the pot. It's kind of fun too. And it's, it is a great time. It, it really is fucking fun. <laughs> I wish I had a prop gun right now. I'd pull it up. <laughs> No, the only thing I have is a Kermit the Frog puppet and a lion. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> Works for me. Well, man, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Anytime, man. Anytime you want to talk comedy, let me know. Of course. Uh, do you have anything to promote? I mean, obviously, I don't know if you have a podcast or anything. I do. I have the Wicked Funny <laughs> Podcast. Amazing. Uh, you can go to wickedfunnypodcast.com and, uh, you know, like, share, subscribe. Oh, all that's what my son says whenever he makes, he like makes videos. He'll be like, share, and subscribe. He tells me to say that shit. Teaching yep. the kid the business. Kid teaching me the business. Back in my day, you just went to a show and performed and then you were <laughs> handed shit because you were funny. Now you got to make goddamn TikToks at Bowden Brian, B E A U D O I N B R I A N. There you go. <laughs> is that for everything or just TikTok? Everything. Everything is that. OnlyFans is going to be that. Everything. Oh, well, I'll subscribe to that first. Fuck yeah. <laughs> well, man, again, thank you so much. It was great meeting you. Take care, Mike. You too. I'm peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in.